Lord, we give you all the praise, all the glory, all the honor. You are worthy to be worshipped and to be praised. We ask as we go to your word right now that your Holy Spirit would speak in a mighty and a powerful way. Lord, we, we've come to meet you here, to sit at your feet, to receive from you. We ask these things in your holy and your precious name we pray. And all God's people said, Amen. Amen. God bless you guys. Welcome again. Calvary Chapel, it's great to have you here. If you have your Bibles, turn to Jude. We'll be finishing up Jude uh, this morning. And then next week, we'll be starting the book of Revelation. So if you were going to go away for 4th of July, forget it. You know, I'm kidding. You can always get the tapes and the CDs. They're always free. But we'll be in the book of Revelation. And then on this coming Wednesday, we'll be in the second half of 2 Samuel chapter 2. We may go into chapter 3 as well. We'll have to see how that goes, but read ahead. So Jude, it's been a pretty heavy letter, amen? I mean, this is, I'll tell you, you know, I was, you read different letters of the Bible, you read different books of the Bible, and you come to realize the more you spend time in it, uh, man, there's a lot more we can learn. And one of the things I've learned this time through Jude is how incredibly exhortive this letter really is. And Jude is writing from a heart of stern warning and exhortation to the early church. As we've talked about, Jude is the brother of Jesus Christ. The half-brother, right? Same. Same what? Same. Mom, different dad, amen? And so we know that he's the half-brother, and he writes this from a heart of humility because he doesn't identify himself as Jesus' brother, but a bondservant of Jesus Christ. But then he goes on to write this letter that really is warning this early church that has, is really struggling with all the false teachers who have come into the land. The theme of the letter is to contend for the faith. And I'll tell you what, it couldn't be any more than uh, right on time than the days we're living in today. Amen? We're living in a time where we need to contend for our faith. We need to do it in a loving and a gracious way, but we need to not be ashamed of the gospel. False teachers, he tells them, have crept into the church. The same is true today. Now, they may not be really a part of the church because the church is the bride of Christ, but they appear to the world to be a part of the church. Can I tell you, when people find out I'm a pastor, they automatically lump me in with every guy they've ever seen on television? And they'll always tell me, oh, you pastors are like this. And you pa-. Because to the world's perspective, anybody who calls himself a Christian is a Christian. And so there are those out there that call themselves Christians that are false teachers, that you know, are all about money, or they're all about this. Or, and you look at them, and they just are so phony, and you think, what in the world? And then you realize, you know what? They're putting a bad name on our Savior. All the more reason that you and I, who truly know Him, need to be vocal about really pointing to who He is. Amen? So he warns them about the false teachers who have crept into the church, those who outwardly claim to speak for God, but are truly lost. And it says in the text, are marked out for condemnation. They turn God's grace into an excuse to live perverse lives. Remember early on in the text, he talked about how, you know, they take God's grace as permission to sin. And that's not untrue today. There are those who say, hey, you know, I've been born again, so I can just live like the world. Now, there's a, a happy medium. There's a, a place in the middle where doctrine really lies. One extreme is, hey, I've got to work my way to heaven. Okay, I've given my life to Jesus Christ, but I could lose my salvation at any moment if I ever blow it, so I've got to keep working my way to earn my salvation. Well, that's wrong, because if that were true, we'd all be in trouble. Amen? The other extreme is, well, I prayed the prayer. I got the get-out-of-hell-free card. It doesn't matter how I live now. And neither one of those is true. And this 
doctrine was going out that by the Gnostics that, hey, you can live any way you want as long as you've given your soul to the Lord. He said they turned God's grace into an excuse to live ungodly and perverse lives. The words would say one thing, but their behavior would deny the Lord. So he was warning them that while God is a gracious God who saves, he desires that none should perish, no, not one, that he's also a God of righteous judgment. And he gave three examples early on in the text. Remember the three examples were first the children of Israel. The children of Israel have been delivered out of bondage in Egypt. After being delivered out of bondage, Passover, blood, shape of a cross, angel of death passed over. They were delivered out of bondage. That's a picture of what happened to us, Egypt being a type of the world. But sadly, when they got to the land of promise and were about to enter in, they fell under the spell of unbelief. Remember the 10, 12 spies went in and 10 came back and said, hey, we're going to get crushed like grasshoppers if we go in there. And so they heeded the words of men over the word of God and unbelief resulted in that entire generation dying in the wilderness. He's given these examples for a reason because unbelief had also crept into the church. Second example he used along with the children of Israel were the fallen angels. Satan and the fallen angels, what had they done? Satan had said, I will become like the Most High. And he tried to overthrow God. And how dumb is that? And he tried to overthrow God and become God himself. And sadly, a third of the angels went with him. And we know what happened. They were cast out of heaven. So we have the sin of pride and the, or the, sin, of pride and the sin of rebellion. And so you have the sin of unbelief, children of Israel, and now the sin of rebellion. He's sharing these things because these are the struggles that are happening in the early church. And then thirdly, he talked about Sodom and Gomorrah. And if you remember, Sodom and Gomorrah had given themselves over to sexual immorality. And God, you know, remember Lot tried to save it and said, Hey, Lord, if I can find 50, 40, 30, 20, 10. If you can find 10, I'll, I'll save the entire land. And he couldn't find 10. Lot was rescued, but even his own wife turned and looked back, if you remember the story. So only Lot and some of his immediate family were saved, but now we have the sin of sexual immorality, the sin of feeding the flesh, succumbing to fleshly desire, and making that more important than God. These Old Testament examples were to serve to minister to this New Testament church. Well, then after that, he talks more about, yeah, you know what else? Along with all these struggles of unbelief and the struggle of of rebellion and pride and then the struggle of sexual immorality he said some of them now have gone the way of cain and remember we talked about this last week the way of cain is trying to come to god your own way where god has a way that we come to him he decides how we come to him and then we say well no i'm going to come my own way if you'll recall he was supposed to bring a sacrifice that god had prescribed and instead cain came to god with his own way instead of bringing a blood sacrifice and I think the number one problem was not even the sacrifice itself, but the heart with which it was brought. Cain came before God and said, I'm going to give you what I think is, is a way to, to reach you, a way for you to forgive me. Guys, there's nothing new under the sun. The world today is creating their own ways to come to God. Guys, we don't decide how we come to God. He decides how we come to Him. And praise God that He's so gracious that He made it so easy. We come by the shed blood of the Lamb. Amen? Jesus plus nothing equals salvation. It, it wasn't a cheap gift, but it was free. He paid the price for us. And so he had the way of Cain. He's using all these examples, again, to exhort them. These are the things that people can fall into. Take heed, lest ye fall. Then he spoke of the error of Balaam. 
He was a prophet of God who sold his calling and God's people in pursuit of physical wealth. You know, there are those today that maybe started out really seeking after God. I don't know. But now you watch them and you can see that their motivation for serving God is to feed their belly, is to make themselves rich or to make themselves famous. This can happen to a pastor. It can certainly happen. I see it a lot in Christian music. Where somebody starts off with a servant's heart, but after a while, now they're looking more for fame, and they start to water down the message so they can, quote, reach more people. But in reality, what they're doing, they've sold out their calling and their gifting to make money. And that's exactly what happened. And then we saw Korah. So we had Balaam, and now he had Korah. If you remember, Korah rebelled, much like Satan did in heaven, Korah did on earth. Moses was the one who was supposed to be in charge. Korah came and said, who do you think you are? Who made you the head over Israel? Well, God, actually. But who made you the head over Israel? And we're just as spiritual as you are. And you know what? And then Moses said, well, let's let God decide. And out they came. And you remember the story. They came out standing before God. And at some point, you know, God kind of says, Pastor Day paraphrase, hey, Moses, step back a bit. And Moses moves back and God opens up the ground and swallows up Korah. Now all of this is in this short letter. These are some heavy exhortations and reminders of this is what happens when we take our eyes off of God. Be it for rebellion, because of rebellion, be it because we want to be on the throne of ourselves, because we're pursuing money, whatever it is, when we say make something else more important than God, look out. You know what? He's a God of grace but he's also a God of righteous judgment. So these false teachers, he later said they're spots or stains at your love feast. They come in to have, take communion. We're going to take communion in just a little bit. And they come in to take communion. They pretend like they're Christians, but in reality, he said they're stains upon your communion service. They're clouds without water. They're trees without fruit. They promise much. They produce nothing. The raging waves of the sea foaming up to their own shame. They make a lot of noise and they leave a mess when they're done. They're wandering stars. They have momentary flashes of light, but in the end, there's nothing left but darkness. And then he says, the Lord is coming to execute righteous judgment. So this is what we have seen so far. Pretty packed little letter. And it's a great word of exhortation. And now he's going to finish off. And this morning as we finish Jude's letter, this urgent warning and exhortation, he's going to give us six more attributes identifying marks of false teachers, but they could also point to people who are pretending to be Christians but really aren't. So these would point to false teachers primarily, but certainly it would apply to somebody who pretends to be a Christian on the outside, but on the inside really doesn't know God. The final one of the six he mentions is going to be the root of the problem in, uh, in bringing about all the other attributes of these false teachers. And then being that this is a letter written to Christians living among and surrounded by te- these false teachers, Jude is going to conclude this letter by giving his beloved readers four instructions to follow if they are to stand firm and resist the lies of the false teachers. So if you're a note taker, I titled the message, How to Stand for Truth When Surrounded by Lies. How to Stand in the Truth When Surrounded by Lies. That's exactly what was happening when this letter was written. False teachers were all around, and he was exhorting those true believers to stand for the truth. First thing we must do is learn to recognize the words of false teachers. Guys, 
We should be so in love with God and so familiar with His Word that if something is off by one one one-thousandth of a degree, we go, what is that? Amen? The way that we can recognize the counterfeit is to know the truth. And one of the reasons people get drug off by lies, people get drug... You know where cults go to find recruits? Christian churches. Why is that? Well, they already believe something. If we can tell them we got something a little bit better, we can draw them away. And that's what was happening at that time. Secondly, along with learning to recognize the words of false teachers, we need to follow the clear instructions found in God's Word. Follow the clear instructions found in God's Word. Instead of listening to what men say, what does God say? And we're going to see some examples of that. Follow the instructions. Number one, remember God's Word. Keep growing spiritually. Exercise spiritual discernment. And commit yourself fully to the Lord. And we'll get into some details as we move on. So let's begin there in verse 16. How to stand in the truth when surrounded by lies. First, learn to recognize the words of false teachers and the source of their problem. Now he's continuing to talk about the false teachers. And he says this in verse 16. These, these false teachers, are grumblers. The false teachers. Again, the certain men who have crept in unnoticed... Now that's a tragic statement. False teachers had come into the church, were teaching their lies, and nobody had noticed. I would hope if somebody teaches something off base at any Bible study that takes place at this church ever, somebody would notice. Amen? And that's only going to happen again if you and I are diligent to remain faithful to God's word. So these certain men who had crept in unnoticed, who denied the Lord, who followed the same pattern as the earlier apostates, the unbelieving Israelites, the rebellious angels, the sexually immoral sodomites, who defile the flesh, who reject authority, who speak evil of those given into authority, who have gone the way of Cain, attempting to come to God their own way, who run greedily in the error of Balaam, trying to make money off their calling, who perished in the rebellion of Korah, sought to overthrow the authority of God, men who have no fear of God. All of these things, and now here's a few more things. Just in case you didn't think it was bad enough, let me tell you some more things about these guys who are hanging out at your church. Guys who have crept in, let me tell you how you can recognize them. Men who will face righteous judgment one day, who might fool some gullible men and women, but will not fool God. One day, they will stand before Him. So here's what he says. Focus on their speech. They are grumblers. The word there in Greek is also murmurers. It's the same word that was used for the children of Israel when they murmured against God in the wilderness. Do you remember that God had delivered them out of bondage in Egypt, and then they started to murmur and said, you know, why did you bring us out here? You just brought us out here to die? You know, you should have just left us in Egypt. And some of them wanted to go back to Egypt. Well, it's the same word here. They're murmurers. These false teachers are murmurers. It says in Exodus 16, You have brought us out into this wilderness to kill the whole assembly with hunger. And then in Numbers, the Lord said, How long shall I bear with this evil congregation who complain against me? As Christians, we should not be murmurers. Amen? You know, my boss, we were doing some interviews together some time back, and it was interesting. A guy walked out after his interview, and she said, You know what? I'm not going to hire that guy. Why? She says, He's a complainer. 
And I don't like complainers. If they're complaining in their interview, they're really going to complain when they get here. And I thought, wow. You know, and, and guys, when we complain and when we murmur, in a way what we're doing is dragging na- down the very name of the God that we say we serve. If we're Christians, do we have anything to complain about? What's the answer? Do we trust in the sovereignty of God? If God knows what he's doing, let's not complain, let's rejoice. And the Bible says, can all join my brethren when you fall into various trials. So he doesn't say, rejoice when things are perfect. The world does that. Rejoice when things aren't perfect from your perspective because God is in control and you trust him. Guys, that's what our testimony is all about. And so they're grumblers. These false teachers, they're murmurers. They're quick to murmur against God. They're focused on themselves and the temporal things of this world. And because of that, they're quick to murmur against God. Then it says they are grumblers and complainers. The word complain there means blaming fate or discontented. They're dissatisfied with God's will and God's way, their lot in life. Who does this remind you of? Cain. The fallen angels. The people of Sodom. Every one of them complained discontented, not happy with their lot in life. Can I encourage you again? We can all fall into that trap. If I only had, if this could only happen, then I would be so much... Guys, can I encourage you? Have joy right where you are and trust God to bring you whatever else He wants you to have in His time. Some would say, well, if I could just find a spouse, then I'd be happy. You know what? If you're waiting to find a spouse to be happy, you're not going to be very good for that spouse. You better get happy now. Amen? You better start having some joy right now. If you're putting all of it on them, hey, that's not fair to them. And you know what? You're not doing well with the Lord if you're waiting for a spouse to bring you joy. Joy is the fruit of the Holy Spirit, not the fruit of marriage. Amen? Now, it can be a byproduct of marriage, absolutely. But the fruit of the Holy Spirit is joy. And has nothing to do with your marital status. Oh, if I could just get a promotion at work. If I could just get this. Christians, be satisfied right where you are. The Bible says godliness with contentment is great gain. That means right where you are, be satisfied. We're blessed. When we murmur or complain, we are telling God that we know better than Him. It's the sin of pride. We must learn to trust God in His sovereignty and His perfect will no matter what. False teachers, like all fleshly people, complain because they're focused on their own wants and desires, not the glory of God. Murmuring, complaining, and discontentment, being unsatisfied, is evidence of one who's focused on self. Guys, if I'm focused on God, when am I going to be discontented? Is God still God? Is He still in control? Does He know what He's doing? If my focus is on Him, I'm going to have joy all the time. But, if I focus on myself, I'm not going to have joy very often. It's going to be temporary happiness that comes and goes based on the day. Attributes like murmuring, complaining, discontentment, being unsatisfied should not be evident in the life of a Christian, one who is truly born again. Now notice what it says. They're grumblers, they're complainers. They walk according to their own lusts. They're driven by the desire of self-satisfaction. The word there for lust is craving, longing, desire for that which is forbidden. They feed their flesh instead of putting it to death. Can I encourage you with something? If you didn't know this already when you came in here, your flesh is never going to be satisfied. Amen? And one of Satan's biggest lies is just feed it a little bit and then the temptation will go away. Has anybody else ever heard that besides me? Just try it once. Get it out of your system. Right? 
All these terms that come out. No, 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 no. You feed your flesh, guess what? It wants more. Your flesh will never be satisfied. And because your flesh is never satisfied, if you're focused on your flesh, guess what you're going to do? You're going to murmur and complain. And what he's saying is they murmur and they complain, and here's why. Because they're walking according to their own lusts. When I was a youth pastor, I used to use this terminology. It's not a biblical example, but, you know, I used to say, look, you got a, in a sense, a fleshly tiger and a spiritual tiger battling for the control of your, of your day. Which one wins the battle? One you feed the most. You know, if we don't spend time in the Word, we don't spend time in prayer, we don't spend time in fellowship, we don't spend time seeking God, don't be surprised when we walk around living a defeated Christian walk. We're feeding our flesh, we're feeding our flesh, we're feeding our flesh, we go out, and man, we struggle. Why do we struggle? Because we have not spent time with the Lord. But the Bible says if we walk in the Spirit, we will not fulfill the lust of the flesh. Amen? So guys, if you want to have victory over the flesh in your daily walk, you must walk in the fullness of the Holy Spirit. These false teachers were led by their fleshly desires. Then it says this, And they mouth great swelling words, flattering people to gain advantage. I love the New Living Translation, what it says about this. Not a translation I use much, but I read this and I thought, boy, this nails it. It says, They are loud-mouthed braggarts, and they flatter others to get favors in return. That's pretty good. And it's right on the money. It says, you know what they are? They're loud-mouthed, and they just tell people whatever they want to hear, so that person will owe them one, or that person will give them what they're looking for. You know, the saddest part about this, this is true in the church, and what's even sadder is it's true in many pulpits today. Tell people what they want to hear. Don't ever offend anybody with the truth, because they might not come back. So make sure that they feel now, again, you should feel loved and welcome here, but you also should feel challenged. Amen? And the Holy Spirit should bring conviction. If you go to a church and you're never convicted, go to another church. Amen? The Holy Spirit came to convict us, right? Now, conviction can come from a heart of love, but we need to be convicted because guess what? None of us is perfect. Now, if you didn't know that today, let me clue you in. You're not perfect. Amen? Oh, I came to my other church. They told me I was perfect all the time. Well, go back there. But it's not true. Amen? We're not perfect. We're sinners in desperate need of a Savior. We need to get right with God. But you know what? Some of these false teachers would tell you, you guys are perfect. You guys are wonderful. Why? Because then he remains popular. Guys, if the pastor doesn't have a few people mad at him, he's not teaching the word right. Seriously. Now, if you're mad because the pastor's a jerk, then he needs to repent. If it's because of his personality, he needs to repent. But if because he opens up the Word of God and just teaches it, lets the Word of God out of the box, just here it is. Here's what it says. If that upsets us, then we need to be upset. They speak arrogantly and boldly with flowery speech, words that tickle ears, that draw a crowd, but are void of substance. This reminds me of every political debate I see just about. And they go back and forth, and at the end, what did they say? Not much, right? You know, have you ever noticed how some people can talk for 10 minutes and say absolutely nothing? And this is what these false teachers were like. They could just, you know, flatter and throw out words, but there's no substance. There's nothing to it. But people think they're so charismatic in the way they deliver it. They tell people what they want to hear 
in order to gain their own profit. It says in 2 Timothy 4, For the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine, but according to their own desires, because they have itching ears, they will heap up for themselves teachers. Teachers who will tell people anything in order to benefit themselves. How are we going to recognize the false teacher? Look for someone who's got a self-absorbed focus. Someone who's a grumbler, a complainer, who walks around according to their own lust, who uses words that flatter others that they might gain personally. Ear ticklers who tell people what they want to hear instead of what they need to hear. Those who are more concerned with drawing a crowd and promoting themselves than making disciples and glorifying God. Guys, if someone's called by God, they're going to make sure that God gets all the glory, and in the end, it's pointing every one of us only unto Him. If we point anywhere else, we've missed it. So how do we stand in the truth when surrounded by the lies? Number one, learn to recognize the false words of false teachers. Number two, follow the clear instruction found in God's Word. Look at verse 17. So he's finished this list talking about these false teachers that goes all the way back basically to verse 4. And now he says, gives a, 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 the contrary position. Here's what he says, But you, beloved. Okay, here's, they, here's who they are. False teachers, grumblers, complainers, gone the way of Cain, following out the example of Sodom. These are men of rebellion, women of rebellion. They're false teachers. They've, God is their own belly. They're seeking their own way. They're following after the lust of their own heart. But you should be different. But you as Christians should be different. He says, you, beloved, remember. We as Christians are to be different, not swayed by the flowery and empty words of the false prophets. We are to remember the word of God. What God has said, not what others say he said. Had a long discussion at work this week. Again, most of you know I work full time. And I was talking to a friend of mine who claims to be a Christian. I pray that he is. Only God knows for sure. But he was trying to tell me some things that he believes that are so contrary to Scripture. And he would say, he said to me at least five times, well, it's in the Bible. And I said, well, I have my Bible right here. Where? Show me. Well, it's in there somewhere. <laughs> How do you know? Well, someone told me. Don't, hey, it's not what other people tell you is in the Bible. It's what's in the Bible. The reason that we hand out Bibles when you come in here is I don't want you to hear what I say is in the Bible. I want you to read for yourself what is in the Bible. And so what happens is too often that people listen to what men say instead of what the Word of God says. I've been talking to a couple people who have been really tripped up by some things they've seen on the History Channel. The History Channel, blasphemy. It's not real history. It's someone's opinion of what... Now, they might have some really good stuff on the History Channel. I'm sure they do. But when they talk about God, they're out of their league. When they talk about the Bible, they got no idea what they're talking about. And I've had people at work come up to me and go, I watched this thing, and because it was on TV, it must be true. Well, stop listening to what other people say about the Bible and look what the Bible says. The Da Vinci Code. People are tripped up by a stupid movie where they interpreted a painting to mean something that it didn't, and... All of a sudden, Jesus is married now, and that's all. Stop! Read the Bible! You know, guys, it's not like this is written in, in Greek anymore, amen? This is written in our language so that we can read it. And yet we would rather believe what someone says they think they believe about the Bible, having, who, and usually they're people that haven't read it. 
Isn't that amazing? This is what was happening. These false teachers. He said, don't listen to what they say. Read what the word says. You, beloved, be different. Remember. It says, remember the words which were spoken before by the apostles of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, the early church, when this was written, didn't have the completed Bible like you and I have right now. They had scrolls that had the Old Testament. And reading a scroll was a big deal. You had to, you know, prior to Jesus coming, you go to synagogue and you had to roll that thing out. You can imagine how long was the scroll of Isaiah? I mean, that thing was like, you know, and they have to roll it out. And, and again, they would read portions of it. And they didn't have the completed revelation the way that we do. And so the standard at the time this letter was written was, did the apostles teach that? Well, you're teaching it. Well, did the apostles teach that? Well, for you and I, it's not did the apostles teach that. It's does the word say that? Because you and I have all of it. I've said it a hundred times, so 101 won't hurt you. 66 books. 40 authors, three continents, three languages, 1,500 years, one central theme, no contradictions. How is that possible? Because God wrote it. Amen? And so when someone says, but someone thought, someone believes, who cares? What does the Bible say? Well, you guys just, you know, you guys at Calvary Chapel like, like the Bible's the fourth part of the Trinity. <laughs> but people tell me that more than once. I actually say, well, in a way, it's the second part because Jesus is the Word, and the Word was God, and the Word became flesh and dwelt the soul. Amen? So the Word of God. The reason that we have the trials and struggles we have is we've gotten away from God's Word, and that's what was happening. These false teachers were challenging the Word, and people were listening to the words of men over the Word of God. May it never be so. Help us, Lord, not to fall into that trap. What does the Bible say? That's the standard. God's word is the authority. It was under attack then, and it's under attack day today. From the very beginning, Satan, Genesis 3, in the garden, first words out of his mouth, did God really say? His lie back then is his lie today. He was challenging what God had said to Adam and Eve. You can have anything you want, just don't eat of that one tree. It wasn't... 66 books worth it was a sentence don't eat that tree that's it that's all they had to know and then satan come. did he really say well maybe not there's a lot of words to remember there i i don't know whole lot of stuff i had to yeah i'm trying to think is that what he said and then satan says uses again the same sin that got him thrown out of heaven god knows if you eat it you'll be just like him you can be like god isn't that the lie of the cultists today? Satan is using the same tactics, challenging the word of God and then telling people they can be like God. Guys, again, the word of God is true and there is a God and you'll never be him. Amen? Those are absolute facts. Isaiah 8.20 said, If they do, do not speak according to this word, it is because there is no light in them. The word of God is under attack. The false teachers do not give God's word the authority and reverence it deserves. And the word of God is just that. It's God's word. Imagine if Almighty God showed up in the room, began to speak, and people said, I don't believe you. Or they walked away, or they put their hand up, or they said, I've got a better idea or a better plan. Well, that's exactly what happens when people do that to the word of God. They're taking their hand and shaking their fist at God. Who is this God? He's the God who created you in his image. 
He's the God that sent His Son to suffer and die that we might have eternal life. He's the God who without whom the whole universe would fall apart. And now we've decided in our Christian nation He's not welcome in our schools anymore. We've decided He's not welcome in the public square. Can't have a nativity scene. Ooh. We can't have Bibles at school. Let's think about that for a second. When we took Bibles out of school, one of the biggest problems in schools was kids chewing gum in class. Now we haven't had Bibles in school for a while. How's that working out for us? Things gotten better? Guys, when we remove the Word of God, get ready. And the Word of God has been removed. Why? Because people, just like these false teachers, want to continue on in their lustful behavior and not have anybody convict them of it. If you put the, you know, can you imagine they're fighting, they've been fighting for years over taking the Ten Commandments out of everything. People find the Ten Commandments offensive. Thou shall not kill. That offends me. How is that offensive? It's offensive because men want to live their own sinful lives and be accountable to no one. And that's what these false teachers were like. By the way, just in case you didn't know, I'm not too political a guy, but separation of church and state, I've had, I don't know, 10 people in the last year tell me that's in the Constitution. It's not. You know that, right? Not in the Constitution. And people say it like it's a fact. Why? Because some false teacher told them that it was. It was in a letter written by Thomas Jefferson, and basically it was saying to protect the church from the state, not the other way around. But the enemy has perverted that statement, and now the church has been under attack ever since, and they just throw out that blatant statement, well, separation of church and state. Can't have a Bible study on campus. Why? Separation of church and state. It's supposed to protect the church from the state. It's supposed to allow us to freely preach Jesus Christ and crucified and risen from the dead without any holds barred. Amen? And let me encourage you. Guys, because somebody has misinterpreted what the law says, and even if the law said it, we're to obey the law until it says that. Amen? Guys, the Santa Cruz need Jesus. Kinda. Or what? I'm listening to a Calvary Chapel guy on the radio. He's like, yeah, we live in the Bible Belt down here. I'm like, what is that like? <laughs> what is that like? We live in the something else belt, but not the... We don't live in the Bible Belt, that's for sure. But one of Satan's lies is to attack the word of God. And the same thing was happening here. But you, beloved, remember the words which were spoken before by the apostles of our Lord Jesus Christ. You remember the word. Don't remember what the world says. Remember what the word says. One of the problems we got in school today, I was talking to another guy at work about this. He says, he's a Christian, he says, I don't understand, Dave, why you care so much about evolution. Who cares? Who cares? Evolution takes God out of the equation. Amen? Now, by the way, I, I get in trouble whenever I say this. If you believe in the, theistic evolution, you need to repent. Because here's the reality. That's not what happened. That's not what the Bible says. God is not an uninvolved God. Amen? He didn't just throw it into motion and step away and let it all happen. No way. That's, our God numbered the hairs on your head. He holds it all together. Amen? And if you read Genesis, where in the world do you get from the goo to the zoo to you out of Genesis 1? You can't. Amen? That's not what happened. But see, even churches today are starting to say, well, it's not a big deal. Guys, if they challenge the foundation of creation, then the rest of the Bible falls apart. Why? 
Because if you can believe the first four words of the Bible, you're not going to struggle with the rest of them. In the beginning, God. Amen? If you can grab a hold of that, the rest of it's not going to be a problem. But if you say, in the beginning, by random chance, over billions of years, lightning hit a puddle. Where the lightning came from, where the puddle came from, I got no idea. And then, you know, I took an anatomy class. You've got to be kidding me if you think that happened by random chance. That takes far more faith than to believe in the creator of the universe. Amen? These false teachers were challenging the word of God, but Christians were to be different. So why this attack on God's word? Here it is, verse 18. How they told you that there would be mockers in the last time who would walk according to their own ungodly lust. They shouldn't have been surprised then. We shouldn't be surprised today that there are those who mock and attack God's word. The word of God prophesied that these mockers would come. Satan cannot refute God's word, so he mocks it. Have you noticed on television often, Christians are portrayed as buffoons? Have you ever noticed that? But do you ever notice they don't challenge what the Bible says? They just make anybody who believes in the Bible look like an idiot or a simpleton. Oh, they believe the Bible. They take the Bible literally, but they don't challenge what the word says. They just try to make someone who would believe in it look like somebody who's not very sharp. Satan can't refute the word, so he mocks it instead. Wherever there is truth, there is always a counterfeit. Satan has allies in the church, and again, he doesn't show up with a pitchfork in his hands and horns growing out of his head. The Bible tells us he will appear as an angel of light, and these false teachers are his tool. There are false teachers in pulpits all over America this morning. Amen? And they're getting up and saying things like, well, the Bible's filled with errors. We don't have to take all of it. There are many paths to God. As long as you believe with sincerity, whatever you believe, you'll get to heaven. Uh, you know, our, the, the God of the Bible, you know, Jesus wasn't really born of a virgin. Jesus didn't, isn't really God. He didn't really die on the cross. He didn't really raise from the dead. And they get up and say that. And I'm thinking, why would anybody even want to go to that church? Because everything they supposedly believe in, they reject. But we live in a time right now when the truth is under attack. Why do they mock? Because they want to walk according to their own lusts. They want to live their own way. They mock God's standard because they don't want to be accountable to it. They want to live lives of sin and disobedience. They want to silence that which convicts and condemns the sinful behavior that they love. And it's so sad as rebellion against God and his word produces both eternal separation and temporal heartache. A lot of witnessing opportunities at work this week, and I had another one where the guy said to me, why do you care so much? Why do you care so much? Why do you care if I believe in Jesus or not? And I said, because bro, because I love you, I care about you, and I don't want you to spend eternity separated from Almighty God in hellfire. Oh, you believe in that? Yes, because the Bible teaches it. Well, I don't believe in it. Well, if you didn't believe in gravity and you stepped off a building, guess what would happen to you? You would splat on the ground. It's not what you believe that makes something true. Amen? And here's the point. We should never come across as self-righteous people who are trying to convince people that our way is right. Our heart ought to be instead, man, I am burdened and broken for you because I know how much God loves you. I know that he's offering a free gift of salvation and it breaks my heart to think about you rejecting it and spending eternity separated from him. That should be our heart. Amen? 
That's how we should be reaching out to people, not with a heart of arrogance, but a heart of love, concerned for their eternity. God created us in His image to know Him. Without Him, our lives may have temporal moments of happiness, but we will never know real joy. His Word is a roadmap not only to eternal life, but an abundant life here and now. The mockers are those in rebellion who attempt to silence the truth, who walk according to their own lusts. They're making a horrible choice that in the end will bring about devastating results. Can you think about this for a moment? We'll get back to the text. Think about the last time you chose to just walk in rebellion for a while. Whether it was lying, cheating, stealing, drugs, drunkenness, fornication, adultery, anger, bitterness, pride, selfishness, whatever it was. And you just made up your mind, you know what, I'm just going to do it. How'd that work out? How'd that work out? Seriously, I know I ask that question a lot, but think about it. Guys, he's not a no fun bummer God who's trying to keep you from having a wonderful time. He's a loving Heavenly Father who knows if you go down that road, it's going to hurt you. I think about how much I love my kids and now my grandson. What would I do to protect them from that which would harm them? And I'm an imperfect dad. How much more does God want to keep us from the very things that will hurt us? The ways of the flesh equal heartache, emptiness, and eventual destruction. destruction. We need to remember God's word, to share the truth of God's word with those who are hurting, those who are mocking and false teachers. They're preaching their lies. They're attacking God's word. And you and I have been called to stand for the truth. I used to say this in youth group all the time. You ever remember the commercials, Friends Don't Let Friends Drink and Drive? Remember those commercials? Are we awake this afternoon? I know it's kind of warm. You guys remember those commercials? Anybody besides me? All right, amen. Thank you. Youth, hey, come on, you know. Good to know that someone's awake. We might have to get metal chairs next round. Keep people. But here, but you know, a statement I love. Friends don't let friends drink and drive. How about friends don't let friends burn in hell? That's kind of radical. Hey, you know what? Guys, that's what we face every single day. Amen? I know I'm an evangelist at heart, but I am, you know, every believer this side of heaven should be burdened for every unbeliever this side of hell. It should just be consuming us. Why? Because when we get to heaven, some of the things we're investing all of our time in really won't matter. But we have people all around us that need Jesus. So, we need to learn to recognize false teachers and the source of their problem. Look at verse 19. Here's the reason that the false teachers have the problem that they have. It says, these are sensual persons who cause divisions, here's the answer, not having the Spirit. These false teachers were sensual persons. Here we have the source of the problem. They were men who were fleshly and carnal. The word sensual there means animals sold or living as brute beasts. They were guided by their passions. And what do they do? Because they're caught up in carnality, they cause division. It says they cause divisions, carnal fleshly, lost, yet claiming they had a deeper truth and a better way, a way that included feeding their fleshly desires by claiming that the deeds of the flesh had no impact. They're trying to draw people away from the truth unto a lie. And then he says this, not having the Spirit. Why would we want to listen to what anything anybody wants to say that does not have the Holy Spirit? The Holy Spirit... Apart from the Holy Spirit, first of all, in case you're new, if you don't have the Holy Spirit, you're not saved. 
Because the Bible tells us very clearly that on, upon salvation, that the Holy Spirit comes to live inside of us. We become new creations in Christ. Old things have passed away. All things have become new. The way we see things, the way we feel about things, the way we look at the world, all changes. Why? Because the Spirit of the living God dwells inside of us. We're not God, but His Spirit dwells inside of us. And so now we see the world through His eyes. We're not perfect. We still blow it. But because we have the Holy Spirit, when we blow it, He convicts us and draws us back into a right relationship. That's the God we serve. Now, these false teachers did not have the Holy Spirit. Apart from the Holy Spirit, anything they have to say is of no real value. If the Holy Spirit's not dwelling in them, they're spiritually dead. They're not born again. They don't have God's down payment on heaven. They don't, they're unable to illuminate truth. And sadly, many struggle to discern between the fleshly and the spiritual. How can I know the difference? How do I know if someone has the Holy Spirit in them or if they don't? Here's one real key. Someone who has the Holy Spirit will always point to Jesus. Always. Because the Holy Spirit in the Bible is always pointing people to Jesus. Amen? Jesus is always pointing people to the Father. If someone doesn't have the Holy Spirit, often they'll be pointing people to their ministry or to themselves. And if they're doing that, that is not something that the Holy Spirit would ever do. Fleshly ministry magnifies man. The Spirit glorifies Christ. Here's what it says in God's Word. For the Word of God is living and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the division of soul and spirit and of joints and marrow, and is the discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. When the Spirit is ministering through the Word, there is edification. When the flesh is merely manufacturing a ministry at best, it is fruitless entertainment. Guys, we can be entertained by a non-spirit-filled message, but we won't be convicted and our lives won't be transformed by it. Amen? And we see today that there's much of that going on. Now, we remember God's word. We follow the clear instructions found in God's word. And now keep growing spiritually. How do we do that? If you're a note taker, take, take note of these things. Because these are, this is like basic Christianity 101, these next few verses. How do I keep growing spiritually? How do I stand for the truth when surrounded by the lies? Number, verse 20. But you, beloved, again believers, building yourselves on your most holy faith. While the enemy seeks to tear down and destroy us Christians, we should be building and growing up. And how do we do that? On the most holy faith. How do you grow spiritually? By growing and growing deeper in your faith. How do you grow deeper in your faith? Romans 10, 17 says what? Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. So if you want your faith to be deeper, spend more time in God's word. Amen? Now that's, the Word of God tells us, and He's telling us and exhorting them, you should be continuing to grow. Christianity, I've said it before, it's like a grease pole. You're either climbing up or sliding down. Nobody stays in the same place spiritually. You're either getting closer to God or further away from Him. And so if we're going to get closer to Him, it begins by spending time in God's Word. Guys, it grows as we experience God's hand upon our life, but the main source of spiritual growth is through his word. And it's the very thing that the enemy ceases to silence. It's our greatest source of spiritual growth, and the enemy wants to remove it from, from our lives completely. Guys, I have yet to meet a strong, faithful Christian who wasn't someone who spent time in God's word. Amen? 
but they don't spend time in God's word, they're struggling in their walk. And rarely, if they're spending a lot of time in God's word, do they continue to struggle. You could, but the reality is, if you're going to mature, you've got to spend time in God's word. So keep growing spiritually, building yourself up in the most holy faith through the word of God. Then he says this, praying in the Holy Spirit. The word of God and prayer go together. If we have the word and we have no prayer, we will have wisdom without power. Amen? And if we have prayer without the word, we will have power and zeal without real knowledge that we can share real wisdom that we can share with somebody else. That's why we need to be people of prayer and people of the word. Amen? Remember, you know, I, one of the greatest things I was told as a pastor many years ago, and, I don't, and I'm not faithful to it completely, but one of the pastors told me for every hour you spend studying, you got to do the best you can to spend an hour praying. I'm not close, but I try. And the point is this, if we simply study and we don't pray, if we simply are in the word, but we're not crying out to God and asking the Holy Spirit to empower us to take what he has shown us and deliver it, we're in trouble. Same is true though too. I know churches with huge prayer ministries, but they don't know what the Bible says. They don't spend time in God's word. Well, we just pray. Well, you need to spend time in God's word. Because you'll pray and then you'll have zeal, but you won't have knowledge. And zeal without knowledge can be a dangerous thing. Notice prayer in the Holy Spirit. Notice it isn't praying with vain repetition. It isn't praying what I think is best. It's the Holy Spirit leading you as you pray. And as you pray, the Holy Spirit is the one who directs it. The evangelist Billy Sunday gave converts three rules for success in the Christian life. Here's what he said. People would get saved, they'd come forward, he'd say, okay, here's the three things I want you to do. And you know what, this is a good list. It's pretty basic. He said, read your Bible every day. Let God talk to you. Pray every day. You talk to God. And then share your faith with other people. You talk to others about God. You know what, if we just did that, we would have revival. Amen? If we just spent time talking to God through prayer, having him talk to us through his word, and then talking to others about him. Well, that's a great list. It's pretty simple. But Lord, help us to just start there. Hard rules to improve upon. Prayer in the Holy Spirit. Being led by the Holy Spirit. Have you ever prayed and you couldn't say anything? The Bible says that the Spirit, well, even deep groanings, he'll pray for you in a sense. Lord, I don't even know what to pray. Isn't God good that he'll take over? in those circumstances. So we are to build ourselves up in the most holy faith, pray in the Holy Spirit. Then he says, keep, verse 21, keep yourselves in the love of God. Keep yourselves in the love of God. God's agape love for you is unconditional. It's not based on performance, but our love for him does grow and deepen as we draw closer to him. The word grow there is to abide. Guys, if you spend time with the Lord, guess what? You're going to fall more in love with him. Is that true or not? Have you ever noticed when you go away to a, like a retreat or something and you have three or four days where there's no TV and there's no distractions and you're just hanging out with God and you're praying and you're talking about God and you're worshiping, you come down like you've been on a honeymoon. Amen? You're, there's just a deeper love for God and a greater passion for Him. Why? Because He, you spent time in His presence and to know Him is to love Him. And this is the, exa the example he's giving here, keeping yourselves in the agape love of God. 
One of the things the Bible does tell us, Jesus said, if you love me, you'll obey me. Now, we don't obey so God will love us. We obey because he loves us and because we love him. Amen? We don't obey so we can earn his favor. We obey because he loves us and we trust that he knows what's best for us. The fullness of God's blessing in my life is experienced as I walk in obedience to him and his word. Knowing him intimately won't be drawn away by the nonsense of false teachers. If, I, if I'm hanging out with Jesus and somebody comes and tells me about my best friend, something that's not true, I'm going to know they're lying. Amen? But if I don't know him very well, I might buy the lie. Then it says, looking for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ unto eternal life. As Christians, we should not only be building ourselves up in the most holy faith by spending time in the Word, be people who pray in the power of the Holy Spirit, keeping ourselves in the love of God by abiding in Him, but we ought to live every day in light of eternity. How many of you, don't put your hand up because lying is a sin unless you really believe it. How many of you believe that Jesus Christ could come back today? Raise your hand. Now, imagine if we live like we really believe that. Amen? If God showed up and told us he was coming back tomorrow, he would never do that because the Bible says no man knows the day or the hour. Amen? But if he did, how would we live different the next 24 hours? You got 24 hours left tomorrow, 11.22, coming back. What would you do with the next 24 hours? First of all, none of us would sleep. I, th I doubt we'd eat much. I know we wouldn't be, you know, watching TV or shooting pool or whatever. You know what we'd be doing? We'd probably be tracking down every person we know and sharing the gospel with them. Wouldn't we? We'd be like, hey, guys, no, you don't understand. But you know, here's the truth. He could be coming back tomorrow. And sometimes we're so busy in our life that the divine appointments come and we miss them because we just don't have time right now. I'm busy about my will that I don't have time for thy will. Lord, help us to not fall into that trap. May we live every day in light of eternity, living every day in anticipation of his soon return and having an eternal perspective. When you live that way, it keeps us from placing too much importance on the temporary and the carnal, and it keeps us from being easily swayed by false teachers. Have you ever thought about this? I've said this before. I will sometimes in my prayer life think about living my life backwards. And what I mean by that, I imagine myself being in heaven and looking back on my life, and what would I regret? And I say, Lord, help me. Lord, I look back. Oh, Lord, I wish I'd done that different. I wish I'd done. You know what? I can't change it once I get to that moment. Amen? But we can change it now. We can live in a way that will impact eternity. So keep growing spiritually. Build yourself up through God's word. Pray empowered by the Holy Spirit. Keep yourselves in the love of God. Live every day in light of eternity. Have an eternal perspective. Last two points. Exercise spiritual discernment in how you approach people with the gospel. Look at the two different ways. And on some, have compassion, making a distinction. But others, save with fear, pulling them out of the father, fire, hating even the garment defiled by the flesh. Here's what he says. There are some people that you can approach with the simple, compassionate, loving truth of the gospel. You can put your arm around them and say, can I tell you something? Jesus loves you. And he died that you might have eternal life. And you know what? My heart is that I would be exhibiting that love to you, that you might see that it's real. And I pray that you'd come to know him. And there are some you can share it that simple, and they'll say, 
you know what, I want that. But that's not true of everybody, is it? Because it says the next verse, but others save with fear, pulling them out of the fire, hating even the garment defiled by the flesh. There are some you have to, truthfully, now you better be prayed up when you do this. Amen? You better be prayed up and have heard from God. But there are some you need to go up to and say, bro, I love you, and because I love you, can I tell you something? You're headed to hell without Jesus Christ unless you don't get right. Pray or pray, you know, pray or stay, or fly or fry, or get right or get left, or whatever, right? But here's the reality. We're all going to stand before God on Judgment Day. And you know what? There's a time when there needs to be a sense of urgency in our heart. And we need to love people enough to share that with them. Now, let me ask you a question. Just, I'm just curious. How many of you are saved because somebody just came and loved all over you, and because of that, you were interested in what they had to say, and you gave your life to Christ. Raise your hand. Okay, how many of you, whether you heard it at a uh, you know, crusade, heard it on TV, or had somebody come up in a loving way, but get in your chest with both feet and tell you you need to be saved? How many got saved that way? Do you see that some people got saved both ways? Here's the point. He's saying we need to use discernment. Because if we go to somebody and we are, you know, real direct and bold and they don't have a heart you know what we're not going to be real effective i believe most people it's kindness that leads people to repentance amen but there are those that we need to love them enough that we're not as concerned about whether or not they like us tomorrow but we need to in a loving way tell them the truth i'm glad someone told me aren't you aren't you glad someone loved you enough to not be worried about how popular they would be after the conversation was over. And then finally it says this, commit yourself fully to Jesus, give him all the glory. This is a great doxology. If you like to memorize scripture, these are two great verses. Here's what it says. Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you faultless before the presence of his glory with exceeding joy, to God our Savior who alone is wise, be glory and majesty, dominion and power, both now and forever amen those are great verses amen but real quickly notice he says now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling you almost sense in the heart of jude that this has been a real hard letter to receive talking about all these false teachers talking about all these people who've fallen away and some of them might have even thought nobody's going to be saved nobody's going to make it i got no hope of making it you know, Cain fell, Sodom and Gomorrah, Satan out of heaven. Balaam was a prophet. He blew it. What am I, you know, I'm never going to make it. And then he says, now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling. Guys, we are kept from stumbling not because of how strong our willpower is, but who the God is that we serve. Amen? And then he says this, and present you faultless before the presence of his glory with exceeding joy. Can I tell you that that really, really ministered to me? Think about this. You're going to get to heaven. And when you get to heaven, Jesus Christ, knowing everything you've ever done. Think about that. Stuff that he that knows you best, loves you most, and doesn't that blow you away? If we were going to show everything about any one of our lives on the screen right now, Everything you've thought or ever done, every sin you've ever committed. Who wants to stay for that showing? Right? But God has seen it all. And what's amazing to me is when we come to heaven, when the judgment day comes, it says he's going to present us faultless to the Father with exceeding joy. He's going to be proud of us. Does that blow your mind or what? 
Do we seem worthy of that? What's the answer? But doesn't that encourage you? And he's writing this at the end of this letter. Okay, I know it's been a heavy letter. Been kind of rough. Needed to hear it. Need to prepare you guys. But guess what? Here's the good news. He'll keep you. And he's looking forward to presenting you to the Father. And when he does it, he's going to do it with exceeding joy. What makes Jesus have joy? You. Is that incredible? And then it closes with this, to God our Savior who alone is wise. So anybody else who thinks they're wise, the reality is that comparison to God, they don't have wisdom. They might have knowledge that helps in this world, but they don't have wisdom that impacts eternity. And then he says this, be glory and majesty, dominion and power, both now and forevermore. God is wise, God is glorious, God is majestic, he is all-powerful, he always has been, he always will be, and that ought to bring us peace no matter what's going on in life. Amen? Why would we turn to anybody else knowing that about the God we serve? Who else would we want to turn to? I want you to think about that now as we go to our time of communion. We're going to take communion, and when we do that, Jesus said, as often as you do this, do this in remembrance of me. When we take communion, what we're doing is we are looking back to the cross of Calvary, remembering the work upon the cross that allows you and I to be presented faultless. Without the cross of Christ, we could not be presented faultless. But we not only look back to the cross of Calvary, but this really is a time to examine ourselves before the Lord. To look within ourselves and say, Lord, you know, examine it. Be there any wicked way in me? Show me, Lord. I know I'm saved. I know I'm going to heaven. But Lord, is there anything that I need to come and make right before you? But not only do we look back to the cross and look within, but we look forward because Jesus said that we will have this supper with him, the supper with him one day in heaven. And isn't that going to be awesome? And so we look back, we look within, and we look forward. And each of the elements, we're going to pass them out one at a time. When you get it, if you could just hold on to it, take a moment, spend it with the Lord. If you have a loved one here and you want to pray together, that's wonderful. And then we'll talk about each of the elements and we'll uh, take them together, okay? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for both the exhortation and the encouragement we've received this morning. Lord, may we be exhorted to stand for the truth in the midst of the lie. And at the same time, may we be encouraged to know that you will be the one that holds us up. That you are the one who will present us blameless before the Father one day. What a joy. Lord, I pray as we go to this time of communion, may we take this unhurried time, undistracted time, to spend it with you. You're worthy of our worship and our praise. You're worthy, Lord, for us to not let the cross grow common, not to allow what you did for us to not make this some kind of a ritual. But Lord, truly, this would be intimate fellowship with you. We ask these things in Jesus' name we pray. All God's people said, Amen. Amen. Amen.